0: So I feel like um, after singing those songs that we need to sing them again after we read this passage, uh, just because I was really overwhelmed uh, just by what the songs were saying and just how much they connect with what we're going to be talking about today uh, in this text in Genesis 1 and 2. So I consider it a privilege to be here today to be able to speak with you about Genesis 1 and 2, which is the beginning of a true story. That proclaims God's majesty and shouts his love for us. It's the beginning of the story of the perfect God who continuously holds all things together, who shows us in page after page of this book that we have in front of us that he never changes but always remains the same. So today we get to rejoice in how awesome God is. We get to be in awe of him And to be humbled by the reality that he chooses to cast his love and affection upon us in his creation of us. Today, we're going to first get to see God exalted as the perfect creator and ruler of the entire universe. And then we will get to see how he created mankind as the pinnacle of his work. So let me say that again. So today, we're first going to get to see God exalted as the perfect Ruler and creator of the entire universe, and then we're going to get to see how he made mankind the pinnacle of his work. So, before we get into this particular portion of the text that we just read, I know it was a lot of texts, I want to give you a broad overview of the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible. Genesis means source, origin, birth, or beginning. We read in verse 1, the very first words, in the beginning. So this is the starting place. It's not God's starting place because we know in Scripture that God is eternal. He has no beginning or end. Scripture makes this very clear. It's rather, it's our starting place. The start of the universe that we live in. Genesis is really like the first chapter of the history of the creation, the fall, and the redemption of man. Right now, we are going to focus on God's creation of the universe and mankind And later today, Colleen is gonna be focusing on the fall of mankind. So today we get to start at the very beginning of the first book. We get to learn where everything that we see, taste, touch, hear, and smell comes from. Today we get to learn where our very own sight to be able to see the creation comes from, where we come from, or should I say who we come from. So though we have a lot of text to cover today, my plan is to take it slow. So rather than diving into many of the specifics in this passage, we're going to have more of like a bird's eye view. Um, We're going to be really hovering over the creation account and just meditating on how awesome our creator God is. We're going to meditate on how complex and awe-inspiring he is shown to be by what he has created. So my hope for us is to have gazed on his perfect ingenuity and creativity long enough that we find ourselves lacking words to describe him. These chapters truly do exalt God as the perfect creator and ruler of the entire universe. So let's start. God's exaltation begins in the very first verse, even before the first verse is over, to be in fact. We read, In the beginning, God... So God is the subject of this text. In Hebrew, this name for God, when we read in the beginning God, we really read in the beginning Elohim. So the traditional view, Jewish view of Elohim is that Elohim is the name of God as the creator and judge and ruler of the universe. So Elohim actually appears 35 times in this first account of creation. And the first account of creation is from Genesis 1:1 to 2:3. It goes into chapter 2 and then we go into the second account of creation in verse 4. So 35 times we hear Elohim used in this text. If we were to count up all the total references to God in this text, we would hear him referenced to 50 times, whether through I or he. Um, so this passage is all about Elohim, our creator and ruler God. It cannot be any more clear. He is exalted in this creation account. Now just a little bit of background about really the, the culture of this time that the book was written. So uh, it was most likely written by Moses in the wilderness uh, with is- when he was with Israel, God's chosen nation, after they uh, had gotten out of Egypt through God's power. So at this time, pagan nations believed that the material universe is what was eternal and that it brought their gods into being. So notice I said gods plural. Not only was it the norm for most people to believe in multiple gods, but they literally believed that their gods were created by the material universe because the material universe is what was eternal. So the fact that God is introduced here as the God but also as the creator of the material universe, was incredibly countercultural. We don't learn this in this account, but God is proclaimed as eternal in the scriptures, not the material universe like the pagans believed. So this account of the beginning of the universe and mankind sets the Hebrew God apart. It sets our God apart. It exalts Elohim God as superior to all created things. Rather than just being one more chapter in a story of random chance creations, no, God is exalted as the creator and ruler of all the material universe and beings. So back to the text. We read in the beginning, God created. So, created, a verb. God created. In this first account of the creation story, Genesis 1 to 2-3, we will find many, many verbs. We can't mention them all, but we find, it's because we find God actively working. So if you glance through this text, you'll read, God created, God said, God separated, God called, God made, God blessed, and finally, God rested. From all of his initiatives and his investment in this new creation. I specifically used these words initiatives and investments because while God actively took initiative to create things, he also invested in the things that he created. By created. So he did this by naming them. For example, in verse 5, God calls light day and darkness he calls night. In verse 10, God calls the dry land earth He actively invests in his creation by orchestrating how all of these complex creations would work together. For example, in verse 14, God decides that stars will be signs for seasons, days, and years. That's still true to this day. He's intentionally creating and investing in his creation with purpose. God also imparts blessings telling living creatures and man to multiply, and he also delights in what he makes by proclaiming it good. Seven times he does this in this text, after he finishes things he made. So we hear over and over again, and God saw it was good. Now, I want you to imagine this with me. So imagine that you're watching this amazing artist paint, and the artist. Steps, the, the artist is putting on his final brush stroke and he steps back from his painting to survey everything that he's done and he's experiencing total joy and contentment at what he just created. Coming back to the creation account, can you imagine being here for this? So God, the artist, speaks and complex nerve endings come together and digestive systems and synapses in the brain and vital organs all come together to form various types of fish, for example, that function differently. In verse 20, we find that God created sea creatures, some of which are fish. Some live in deep water, some live in the middle area of the water, some live at the surface of the water. Each fish God equipped to function in the perfectly in the perfect environment that he created for them to be. And that is just one creature that God created to function in the ocean one creature in a whole universe of creations. We could take any one created thing and marvel over its complexity for weeks, for maybe more than a year. We could easily fill this entire room with textbooks trying to explain the complexity of just the human body alone. We've had thousands of years to study it as people, and our understanding is still incredibly limited. Take the human brain, for instance, which we all have. Our human brains that God created are 30 times faster than the world's fastest supercomputer. So this supercomputer, it's real, it exists, it takes up almost two acres of space. And it takes over a million watts of power to run. Our brains use only 20 watts of power And they fit inside our heads. So God is really amazing. Your brain functions incredibly more efficiently and with greater complexity than we could ever comprehend. The supercomputer took over 1,000 people working together to create it. God said, let us make man. He used some dust to make him. He breathed into him. And there he was. And man's brain is only one part of what God created to make up man. We don't have time also to touch on plants, animals, water, mountains, sky, stars, galaxies. And yet for all these things, God said, and it was so. Over and over again in this text, we read, God said, and it was so. By his word, he created everything. Elohim didn't have to make multiple attempts to create anything. There was no trial and error or failure going on here. And this is only revealing a few aspects of who God is as creator. So God is exalted as the perfect creator who is sovereign over all things. All he had to do was speak and things came into existence. If I were to type up all the verses from the Old and New Testaments that explicitly exalt God as the perfect creator, ruler, and sustainer of all things that are made, we would fill over 20 pages single-spaced. So when we hear Elohim God, creator, ruler, and judge, we are meant to worship. This initial description of God as perfect, sovereign creator who we cannot begin to comprehend This exalted view of God ripples throughout the pages of Scripture, a continuous echo of his majesty that demands our worship and awe. For example, we read in Luke 19.40, as Jesus, who is God in the flesh, come to rescue mankind from our sin, as Jesus is being reprimanded reprimanded by the Pharisees for allowing a multitude of his disciples to worship him, Jesus responds to these Pharisees. He says, I tell you, If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Do you hear that? Even the very stones would cry out in worship. And I don't know about you, but I've never heard a stone say a word, so that would be pretty amazing. Um, So, God is only He is worthy of our worship. By Him, all things were created that are in heaven and on earth. Let's pause. I want us to pause for a moment just in prayer to worship God as our Creator of all things and exalt him before we move on to the next section. God, only you are worthy of our worship. By you, all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through you and for you. God, we come to you in humble reverence and awe, knowing that we can never understand how awesome and great you are. The very words we use to praise you, you created. God, as we examine this next portion of your scripture, this humbling idea that we were the pinnacle of your creation, Lord, keep us humble. Keep us worshiping you, thanking you, praising you. Keep us centered on you as Elohim God, creator, ruler, and sustainer of ourselves and all that we see and experience. Keep us worshiping you, Lord. Amen. So, we have seen that God is exalted as the perfect creator and ruler of the universe. And now as we examine man as the pinnacle of God's creation, we're going to do so from a place of bowed knee and hands raised in worship. You see, this is how it was meant to be. We were meant to be the pinnacle of God's creation from a place of reverence and awe and worship with bowed knee to our creator and ruler. So we're still in Genesis 1, and we'll now also start getting into Genesis 2. And just remember, sin has not entered the picture yet. So in chapter 1, verse 26, there's an important shift, so I want us to read it together. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. So a lot of shifts are happening in this portion of the text. So we've gone from multiple variations of God saying, Let there be, or Let there be waters, let the earth. And now we're shifting into God saying, let us make. So the Holy Trinity is coming together here to intentionally and creatively craft man. Now we don't have time to get into the significance of the Holy Trinity, but it's important to mention. So let us make man in our image after our likeness is what is being stated in this text. Man, this is important, man is the first and only part of creation that God decides to make in his image. In this passage, man is set apart from the rest of creation. Man is shown as the pinnacle of God's work. And we are man. Just a reminder. One of the reasons I chose to use the words, man is the pinnacle of God's creation, rather than God created man in his image, is because for those of us who've been following Jesus for a while, we're kind of used to hearing that we were created in his image, and we can kind of say say it without realizing how big of a deal this is. It is a big deal that God chose to create us in his own image, and it sets us apart. The God of the universe who we just spent time worshiping for how creative, perfect, and incomprehensibly awesome he is, he made us to be like him. So it gets even better. In this portion of the text, we hear God having a personal, intimate connection with man and woman whom he created. We hear, "Behold, I have given you" in verse 29, and again, "I have given you" in verse 30. So this is the first time the first and second person pronouns are used, I and you. When we use the words I and you, we use it with people that we have relationships with in life. I don't say, tree, I want to have a, a relationship with you. Or, I really like you, tree, and I want to plant you in my backyard. No, we say, I think I'm going to plant the tree there. That seems like a good spot. We find in this portion of the text that God's relationship with man is very different from God's relationship with plants, animals, and everything else he created. He created. Man is also the only creative being that God gives this command to rule and tend to his creation. God gives man authority over things he created. What a privilege. When I was reading this, I just found myself reflecting on the fact that we were given this huge privilege and gift of tending for creation. We get to take care of plants, trees, animals, anything that breathes. So seriously, I want want us to imagine this from two different perspectives. Okay, so first, I want you to imagine that you're a parent, which many of you are, so that works. And you just built some fancy car from scratch with your bare hands. And it's worth $2 million. It's totally souped up with all the latest gadgets, and it has the sweetest paint job that you've ever seen in your life. You did it yourself. Now imagine you're getting the keys, and you're giving them to your 16-year-old right after you complete the job. And letting them take it on its first spin for their first time driving ever. I mean, seriously, that is essentially what God did here. Only what he made is way more valuable and complex than some $2 million fancy car. So that's the first thing I want you to imagine. Because I want you to first understand what a big deal this is that God gifted us to be able to do as rulers. Now I want you to imagine it from the teens' perspective. So we're like the teens'. Now remember, there's no sin or shame or fear of messing up or failing that's not entered our vocabulary yet. So that wouldn't be a part of your reaction as you imagine this. So imagine you're 16, you absolutely love cars, you think they're beautiful, you've never driven one, but you just know it's going to be amazing. And your dad just built this amazing $2 million car, and it is legit. It is the most amazing car on the whole planet because your dad is so skilled and creative. Seriously, when people look at this car, their jaws just drop. It's unimaginably awesome and beautiful. And your dad, wow, your dad gives you the keys. And he says, I want to give this car to you to drive. I want you to be in charge of the car. I want to give it to you. Now remember, there's no fear of failure, there's no sin and no shame. What would your response be? Probably speechlessness for sure at first. Maybe utter amazement. And I mean, this is amazing. So when we compare this to the text, God gifted us with tending to and ruling over his perfectly beautiful creation that he made. He wants us to live out his image as ruler, and he gifted us his gorgeously awesome creation to do so. Every day, you are surrounded by God's gifts to you. Every day... Maybe you walk out of your front door with a door that's made of wood. Gift from God. The food you eat. Gift. Your faithful dog that runs to greet you at the door. Gift. Gift from the creator of the universe. The ruler of the universe. He's given you the ability to rule and relate since you were created in his image. He commands us in this passage here to do so. He commands us to live out his image and it's a gift. There's no futility when it comes to working yet because there is no sin yet in this passage. So it is pure joy. Cooking is pure joy and rejoicing in the gift of fruit and plants that God gave us to eat. It's we get to all the time instead of we have to. So back to the car analogy, it's like at the age of 16, we get to drive the $2 million car created by our perfectly awesome dad. We get to. And we find that even after this, God said everything was very good. Even after he tasked us to rule his creation. I think that's pretty crazy. So obviously, we're not going to get into Genesis chapter 2 in detail. But Genesis chapter 2 is very much an expansion of this portion of the text that we just discussed. Genesis 1, 26 to 30. In Genesis 2, we get to see more of the implications of what it means that God created man in his image and asked him to rule over creation and fill the earth. We get to hear the details about what happened on day 6, the day man and women were created. The fact that there is a Genesis 2, which is about day 6 and the creation of man, also points to the fact that man is the pinnacle of God's creation. There's not a whole chapter devoted to the day of the creation of fish, or animals, or how God separated land from waters. We hear in chapter 2 again, but even more clearly, that God has an intimate relationship with us. Chapter 2 introduces a new name of God, the name Yahweh God. Let me say that again, it's Yahweh God. Anytime you read Lord God in this text, you're reading Yahweh Elohim. So when you read Lord, you're reading Yahweh. So you're probably wondering yourself, what's so important about Yahweh, and how does this mean God is in intimate relationship with us? I really can't wait to tell you because this is really huge. So Yahweh is the personal and intimate name that God gave to Israel when he made a covenant with them to be their God as he delivered them from Egypt. As I said earlier, The book of Genesis was probably written by Moses while in the wilderness for 40 years after God had delivered the Israelites from slavery from Egypt. We don't have time to go into it, but it was a miraculous and divine deliverance. So Yahweh is the name that proclaims God's steadfast faithfulness to his people. The personal God who cares about his people faithfully. Yahweh is the name used most frequently of God in the Old Testament. It appears 6,823 times. From day one in the creation account, we have had a faithful, caring, relating, personal God. His steadfast love for mankind was present here in the creation account. This is another thing that sets man apart as the pinnacle of God's creation, this personal relationship. God made man in his image and is committed to man. He chooses to love man. Even here we read that the covenant-keeping God who is faithful to his people is present. So here in our text, we hear our faithful, loving, covenant-keeping God give man a specific place to live. That's in verse 15. In verses 16 to 17, we hear him tell man what he can and cannot eat. This is for man's good, and it also shows that God is the ultimate ruler, not man. And then for the first time, we hear God say that something wasn't good. That's in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So man was made in the image of God. And God as the Trinity is a relational God. Man needs relationship. He needs a helper. So here, woman is created and invited into this beautiful creation to be man's helper. Now, obviously this is a woman's retreat, and we're all women. So we're going to chew on this one for a little bit. So God creates woman as helper. Please note, this is important to note, there is no shame or inferiority here in being a helper. It was good to be a helper. The only thing that God says that wasn't good was the absence of woman. Woman wasn't a random add-on or a side thought. She was integral to God's image being displayed and all of God's creation being good. Woman also gets to take part in the responsibilities and gifts given. If you look back to Genesis 1.28, after God made man and woman... God blesses them. God tells them, you read, to fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. Woman gets to take part in the responsibilities and gifts given. In this account, there is no comparing roles and relegating one role as superior to the other. It just was, and it was good. The man exults in the woman, he does not see her as lacking in any way but sees her as an extension of himself. Their gifts, their roles, their responsibilities were not about themselves at all. They were about who God is. There was no room for comparison, all was gift. So this is us, ladies. We tend to be comparers, but the text compels us to set aside comparing and analyzing ourselves and instead marvel over the fact That the creator of the universe, Yahweh, our covenant-keeping God, said the universe was not good when you weren't there. Stop and consider that you were created to uniquely reflect the image of God and that he wants a covenant relationship with you. I want to say that again. You were uniquely created to reflect the image of God and he wants a covenant relationship with you. When we read Yahweh, the name of God, we should hear God's heart for us. When we read Yahweh, we are hearing from the creator and the ruler of the entire universe. And he is saying to us, I love you, and I'm going to be faithful to you. Remember always that you were fearfully and wonderfully made. God loves you, his divine image bearer. So while we read this text as a whole... We get to read of the perfection that God created in this text. Everything was good and worked perfectly. Man had perfect relationship with God. There was no sin, no discord. We hear no discontent, no conflicts, no destruction, no death, no decay, no toiling and work, no fear, no guilt, no shame. All is well and good and perfect. Here, in this text, when man and woman live as God created them, to embrace the mind-blowing gift of getting to represent the image of God under his guidance, with entire dependence on him as our creator, sustainer, and ruler. They get to create, we get to create. They get to rule with perfect love. They get to exult in the goodness of relationships. And even more than this, they get to have perfect relationship with God. All of creation is in perfect harmony here in this text. No pain. There's no suffering. And yet as we sit here reading this text, we know that this is not the way that things are now. The car we talked about getting at the age of 16, we totaled it. Things aren't perfect. We don't exalt and worship him as perfect creator and ruler of the universe. We don't believe or understand the gravity of being the pinnacle of his creation, and we don't reflect his image. We forget everything that we just learned about Elohim Yahweh and the beauty of being his image bearers. You know, for much of my life, probably up till after college, I believed this lie that I was garbage. I was literally garbage and God kind of pityingly decided to transform this garbage heap into something nice I didn't know or understand that he made me in his image that I was beautifully crafted that I was a divinely inspired image bearer and yet I would read in Psalm 139 and I had it memorized, my mom made me memorize it I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it full well. So do we believe this? Do we get the gravity of who we are? Of whose we are? Ladies, our deepest fears of failure and our most aggressive attempts to succeed show us that we do not understand who we are or whose we are. Our deepest fears of being unlovable, and our most aggressive attempts to earn and obtain love show that we don't understand who we are or whose we are. When we do this, we've forgotten Genesis 1 and 2. We have forgotten that God is exalted as the perfect creator and ruler of all things, and we have forgotten that he made us as the pinnacle of his creation. He made us in His image. Maybe we believe the lie that we're not the pinnacle of God's creation, that God created junk when He created us. I know for me there have been plenty of times where I tell myself these awful lies about myself and who I am. Maybe you look in the mirror and the thought ugly crosses your mind. Maybe you're at work believing that you have nothing to offer. Or maybe you're a mom and you denigrate yourself as having no value or meaning as you change yet another diaper or clean up yet another mess. We forget who we are. We forget whose we are. We forget that we are loved by the creator of the universe and that he created us to live out his image. We have forgotten Yahweh. Maybe we believe the lie That being the pinnacle of God's creation wasn't enough. That we need more. And instead of exalting God, we want to exalt ourselves. There are definitely plenty of times that I've done this as well. And it's almost harder to admit this one. There are times when we want God's glory for ourselves. Maybe we serve others really so that they love us. Rather than serving others because we've been loved by the Yahweh God of love and want to live out an expression of his love, to proclaim who he is. Instead of pointing all the glory back to God whose image we reflect, we find ourselves working really hard to be the best, to have the seat of honor, to be glorified. We miss out on exalting God as the perfect creator and ruler of the entire universe who deserves all of our worship. Christ came for this very reason— Because we forgot and rejected who God is, and we forgot and rejected who we were created to be. He came because He is Yahweh God, because He was faithful to mankind from the very beginning. He was determined to win us back to Himself. You are who God came to redeem. Christ, who was God in the flesh, came to die on the cross for you and for me so that there would be a restoration of everything that was lost that we read about in this text. When we decide that we think our plans for ourselves and for creation are better than God's plans, we exalt ourselves to a position that isn't ours. We try to take on a job that is way too big for us and we ruin creation. We ruin ourselves we ruin this perfect harmony that we find here in this text, just like the first woman and man did in Genesis chapter 3. But Yahweh God, and we hear throughout the pages of Scripture, but God, our faithful God, who has steadfast love for us, he had a plan to restore what was lost and to bring us back to himself. He had a plan to rescue and save us, that we might experience perfect relationship with him again, that we might live out what it means to be the pinnacle of his creation, to display his image, and to shout who he is by how we live our lives. And the rest of this book, the Bible, that you hold in your hands, tells this story, the story of God's steadfast, unfailing love, which is shown clearly by his death for our sins on the cross, so that perfect harmony and perfect relationship with him could be restored. That who he is will one day be proclaimed perfectly by all creation. That our lives, our very lives, will shout his name. The good news is that because of Christ, we are invited and able to become more and more like the image bearers that he created us to be. We are invited to return to the perfect relationship we had with God again, to experience his perfect and steadfast love and exalt him as perfect creator and ruler of all things. He is our Yahweh, our God who loves us with a steadfast, everlasting love. Let's pray. God, we praise you for how amazing you are for your creative ingenuity that reveals to us a fraction of your beautiful complexity and leaves us in a state of wonder. Lord, you are our creator and ruler. You understand us better than we can understand ourselves. You know every fiber of our being. And yes, you know even our ever-changing fickle hearts. Lord, thank you for gifting us with the honor of being image bearers. Thank you for rescuing us from ourselves so that we could return to your steadfast love and proclaim your name as image bearers once again. Amen. Please stand.